1924, Joseph Stalin assumed the leadership of Russia. It's quite an impressive uh, thing to do. Um, and he had lots of ideas of how to run a country. Um, and so he promptly subjected this massive uh, population to uh, some of the worst changes uh, uh, that a population would go under. There was all sorts of agonising uh, ways that politics, culture and economy was uh, um, subjected to violence and ideology. Um, now, uh, so th this was going on from 1924. Uh, during the Second World War, the United Kingdom overlooked the, uh, uh, the atrocities going on in Stalinist Russia and decided to ally itself with Russia to fight the Nazis. There's no such thing as a good war. When you are joining up with Stalin, uh, things have got to be pretty rough. Uh, many people sort of recognise this as a practical necessity. You know, you join up with uh, one evil to fight the other. Uh, but one journalist wanted people to know that joining up with Russia was not a good thing. Uh, that Stalinist Russia uh, was full of oppression and uh, 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 just full of hypocrisy. Um, and wonderfully, they mocked and drew attention to Stalinist Russia with a fairy tale. I really like this. Uh, instead of a uh, sort of a newspaper article or a documentary, they wrote a fairy tale. And um, even though it's all about politics, the book he wrote, the fairy tale he wrote, made the top 50 favourite novels in the BBC's Big Read uh, a few years ago. So even though it's all about politics, it was so easy to understand and so hypnotic and so compelling that people still find the book uh, 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 worth reading. And so you have this allegory called Animal Farm. And in this story, the animals rise up against the farmer. Uh, the farmer's like the oppressor, he makes animals do what they don't want to do, and he kills them, and he makes them work. And uh, it's very easy to see how a farmer could be seen as an oppressor. Like, so the, the animals revolt against him. And uh, so they get rid of their human overlords, and then the animals are running the farm. And you're like, wow, what a, uh, a paradise, what a utopia they live in. Um, but it very quickly goes wrong. So, uh, this is an animal farm. Throughout the year, the animals worked even harder than they had worked in the previous year. To rebuild the windmill with walls twice as thick as before and to finish it by the appointed date, together with the regular work of the farm. It was a tremendous labour. There were times when it seemed to the animals that they worked longer hours and were fed no better than they had done in Farmer Jones's day. On Sunday mornings, uh, Squealer, one of the pigs, uh, holding down a long strip of paper with his trotter, would read out to them lists of figures proving that the production of every class of foodstuff had increased by 200%, 300% or 500% as the case might be. 
The animals saw no reason to disbelieve you, especially as they could no longer remember very clearly what conditions had been like before the rebellion. All the same, there were days when they felt they would sooner have had less figures and more food. All orders were now issued by the pig squealer or one of the other pigs. Napoleon, he's like the big pig in charge, he was not seen in public um, as often as once in a fortnight. And when he did appear, he was attended not only by his retinue of dogs, but by a big black cockle who mar marched in front of him and acted as a kind of trumpeteer, letting a loud cock-a-doodle-doo before Napoleon spoke. Even in the farmhouse, it was said, Napoleon inhabited separate apartments from the others. He took meals alone with the two dogs waiting on him and he used the finest china. Um, it was also announced that the gun would be fired every year on Napoleon's birthday. And Napoleon was never spoken of as simply as Napoleon. He was always referred to in a formal style as our leader, Comrade Napoleon. And the pigs liked to invent titles for him, such as Father of All Animals, Terror of Mankind, Protector of the Sheephold and Ducklings, um, and the like. And uh, it goes on. So the, the pigs can't take control of this revolution, this rebellion, and them being in charge, they quickly change it. They undermine it. Their own arrogance and greed causes this uh, wonderful idea of becoming this farm of uh, free animals into something uh, a lot more toxic. Orwell's purpose was to show us that Stalinist Russia uh, was not an ally to hold close. But I think in this we can also find a more universal truth. You see, whatever the situation humans find themselves in, people have a tendency to seek their own benefit. We have a tendency to uh, um, sort of try and push our own agenda to uh, uh, take a certain prominence in anything that goes. And that happens even at another's loss. At the start, Adam and Eve lived in paradise. Paradise! There was nothing they wanted for at all. And yet there was a tree that they were told not to touch. And they thought, you know what, let's remake this paradise. Let our agenda take precedence rather than God's. And their attempts at remaking paradise led to their own ruin. And then there is that stage of Israel's history where it's ruled by judges and God is their king. And there is this idea that Israel is being led by God himself. And the people were like, well this is good but we want to remake it. We want to be like all the other nations. We want to be well regarded by the foreign powers and be someone to be feared. And so they ask for a king and things go wrong uh, with King Saul and King Solomon particularly. It is a universal trait that we have a tendency to remake things in our own image and it goes disastrously wrong. 2,000 years ago, little boy was born. Um, he lived differently. You know, he was 
behaved in a way that was unusual. He spoke differently. At 12 years old, he went into the centre of Jerusalem and spoke to the leading scholars and they were impressed by his understanding. At 12 years old, he was obviously remarkable. And this guy who came from Nazareth, he grew up and at around 30, he started to uh, become a teacher in his own right. And one of the things he did was challenge the entitled to come against the arrogant and the people that were evil he would confront. And it was often the evil people uh, that were just making life miserable for everyone else, often in a religious sense. Meanwhile, as well as opposing the entitled, he had time for the young, he had time for the poor, time for the sick. It's really easy not to do that. But Jesus had time for these guys. If you've ever, and I, we can recommend it here, can't we? The, uh, the Chosen series. And there is this great episode in that Chosen series where Jesus hangs out with kids. And you just uh, watch the episode and it just reverberates as truth. Here is a guy that knew what life was about. Here was a guy that you want to follow. Here was a guy that spoke things and they were actually true rather than spin or propaganda. And not only did he speak truth, but he would free people. He would heal them. He would restore them. There would be a place of sorrow and he would lift them out of it. He was a remarkable guy in every sense of the word. He was the only man to have ever lived that never gave in to that piggish uh, uh, self-aggrandisement, that Napoleon-like tendency to try and push his way to the top. Today is Palm Sunday and churches everywhere else except here are remembering Jesus's entry uh, into Jerusalem. And so uh, today is not a Palm Sunday uh, sermon, but every other church in the world is remembering Jesus's triumphal entry when all these people are celebrating uh, uh, Jesus as this coming King and they wave and they shout hallelujah and hosanna. And there is this moment of clarity. This is the man we've been looking for. This is the leader we have hoped for. This is the king that we wish we had. But this presence of God incarnate didn't stop them reverting to their worse selves. The people around Jesus in Jerusalem in that week, quickly unmade things, remade things in their own image, allowed their worst nature to get the better of them. And sure enough, as it happens every time in history, uh, disaster and grief rip through the story. You have this moment when Jesus, this most amazing man, this man that uh, makes grown men weep, uh, tears of joy. 
he comes in and suddenly he becomes public enemy number one and it seems inconceivable and yet we know, don't we, that we have that tendency to remake things and destroy things. And so a greedy friend betrays him, a jealous leadership conspire against him, foolish people are led to uh, call him out and a lazy government allows his uh, arrest and execution. Uh, just because of the times, we're not having a, uh, a good Friday meeting like we normally do. It is uh, normally fantastic to congregate in Queen Square and, and take over the town centre and sing and listen to stories of Jesus. And we're sort of uh, kept from that because of the pandemic and uh, because we don't get that chance to explore the Jesus' death, I wanted this morning to be a moment where we just take in that moment of crucifixion before we get to the resurrection. You see, while the resurrection is wonderful, it is intrinsically linked to the gloom of the crucifixion. Frodo Baggins says it well, he says, when things are in danger, someone has to give them up, lose them so that others may keep them. And you have that moment of loss on Friday and that moment of gain on Sunday. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27. It says this in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 27. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they all shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, um, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. And then he released... Barabbas, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head and they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! they said, and they spat on him. And they took a staff and they struck him on the head again and again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. To us, the moment of crucifixion may seem the climax of it. That may be the whole story. You know what? To just say that Jesus died on the cross would be enough. But the thing is, his heavenly Father and the Gospel writers need us to know more. It wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross. Mark 
Matthew, Luke and John all write not just of that gruesome moment of execution but all the insidious things that led up to it of all those around Christ who behaved atrociously to him why all this effort? Why couldn't they just say he was sentenced to death? Why all this pain even to get to the cross itself? Well, there is a universal truth that the authors want us to hear, that I think God wants us to recognise, that in this moment of execution, we all join in. We are all guilty of what they did. Every single sin we commit, every selfish deed, every evil act, no matter how well and good we are minimising its importance, everything that we do that is a lie or an untruth, a deception, it's part of this conspiracy to overthrow the Father to darken the light, to dismiss the Holy Spirit, to kill Jesus. Sin is no small thing. And the prophet Isaiah puts it really well. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. That sense of individual rebellion. Each, every one of us. And so the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That turning of our own way needed to be paid for. And Jesus paid for it on the cross. It is brutal, but it is true. We are all involved in the murder of Jesus. It's not the Jews, it's not the Romans. It's every single member of humanity. And I want to, this morning, just take this further and just expose uh, uh, three particular motivations that the lost still indulge and the saved still dabble on. I do not uh, I want us to somehow uh, uh, just uh, glibly just write off our bad actions as sin, but, but uh, delve deep and recognise them for what they are. In uh, 26 AD, uh, Pontius Pilate, he was chosen by the Emperor Tiberius himself to become the Roman, air, Roman governor of Judea. So he looked after the area uh, uh, that, that Jesus and Jerusalem was in. Um, he didn't get off to a great start. He sort of came into power. What he did, he erected a load of Roman symbols around Jerusalem and this kind of upset the Jews and they sort of rebelled and then uh, Pontius Pilate were like, well, you can't rebel, I'm the Roman governor. And, and there's this moment where the Jews, they go, well, we're going to bear our neck and you can kill us rather than us allow you uh, to erect these symbols. And uh, so it wasn't the most judicious of people at the beginning, but it seems that he might have learned something from that. So midway through his reign, uh, he's asked to consider a case. The Sanhedrin have sentenced Jesus to death and they want Pilate to ratify it, to say, yes, I agree with it. It had to be submitted to the Roman uh, governor. And Pilate looks at this case 
And he knows there's no reason to kill Jesus. He is a good guy. He is someone that brings healing. He is someone that brings wholeness. He is a, a, a preacher of forgiveness. And um, the Sanhedrin that have ganged up against him, it's all about power. And um, he doubts that Jesus deserves this at all. And he articulates, he says, I can't find no reason for this. But the Sanhedrin have won the crowd. And they shout, crucify him. And he doesn't stand up to it. And what does Pilate do in the face of this? He is compliant. He uh, gives in. And it should shake us to our core. Here is a cowardly, self-serving man who gives in. Who has the moment to stand up for someone that didn't deserve death. But he gives in because he is frightened because he wants to preserve the peace, because he doesn't understand truth. And this practice is still indulged by us today. The lost know that it costs to love truth. The lost know it costs to follow the way of life. And so they argue and reason and feign doubt. Anything to get out of the cost of recognising God, of recognising that they need a saviour. But believers are no uh, noobs to this either. We are compliant too. It is an atmosphere we live in and so often we just are compliant to it nevertheless. We want an easy life and it is hard work standing up for truth and goodness and light. But we are compliant. We take on that pilot-esque attitude and say, you know what, it's just not worth the effort. And pilot is a challenge to us. This morning, don't be compliant. Never pretend that you can wash your hands of evil going around. We are supposed to be not a light under a bowl, but a light on a hill that people can see. As a pilot allows his soldiers and fortress to be used for Jesus' torture. Make no mistake, Pilate is complicit in Jesus' execution. As Pilate allows his tools of, uh, of government to be used to attack Jesus, there is this condemning crowd. They shout, and the uh, text is just full of this ferocity of the same people that welcomed Jesus in Jerusalem are now shouting, for his execution. While Pilate is guilty of comp being compliant, the crowd can have a different accusation uh, thrown at them. They have a different offence. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey. He was a humble man. He was a lover of sinners 
and a miracle worker. And now these leaders, these wicked men, had convinced them against all the evidence. There was not a shred of evidence to suggest Jesus was a, a deserved death. Nevertheless, the leaders convinced the people that they should call for Jesus' execution, that he was a troublemaker and a blaspheming heretic. They knew in their heart of hearts weren't true, but they went along with what their leaders said and were turned against this beautiful man. These crowd suddenly thought light was darkness and that life was death, that truth was faulted. There is this moral insanity, a moral craziness. And that is a universal truth too. And it continues to be found in every heart. We confuse with up, with down, from left, with right, from north, from south, and we think one thing is the other. Lost people still imagine that ignoring their God-given conscience will lead to happiness. It's crazy. But this is the uh, arguments that we're presented with and the deceit we're encouraged to believe in. Meanwhile, Christians think that somehow of robbing God of their devotion to him, of taking away their energy and money and time from God, that they'll somehow be better off. It's moral insanity to think to rob God of what it is good to give him will lead to our satisfaction. But so often it's true. Uh, Peter Kraft has more to say on uh, this moral craziness that we are so often subject to. He says this, uh, he's, uh, he's sort of reflecting on the Ten Commandments, and he says this, You shall not murder. Choose life, because human life isn't just good, it is sacred. Don't fall for the con job of calculating the value of life. Deep down, everyone knows life is sacred. Even when defaced by pain or death, or even sin, don't fall for propaganda like quality time, or quality of life. Quality time is used as an excuse for not giving your kids as much of your time of your life as you know you ought to give them. And quality of life is used as an excuse for killing people who aren't as healthy as their killers. You shall not steal. Since people are sacred, their bodies are too. And since their bodies are sacred, so are their extended bodies, their stuff. Their possessions, others' possessions, are to be respected. People are to be loved. God is to be worshipped. Worship God, love people, and respect stuff. Respect all free, love people, and God, but not stuff. And worship God alone. Don't worship people or stuff. And don't love stuff. Things are a means, not an end. Things are to be used. People are ends to be loved. We are really stupid. Because unless we remember to correct ourselves, we naturally slide into using people and loving things.
things. We continually have to remind ourselves to be sane, to live in reality, to treat everything as what it really is. If we don't do this, we will always bump up against the wall of reality and no pain will come off that wall, but some flesh will come off our face. The point of the sixth commandment is that although things are not to be worshipped or loved, they are to be respected. When a person makes a thing his thing, that thing requires a claim on us to respect because it is now his. We are commanded to respect others' space and stuff. As Pilate dries his hands, as the crowd drift off home and rest their voices, the next players in the uh, story take their places. The soldiers come on the scene. And it tells us there's a whole company of them. Over a hundred men gather, used to the violence of war. And what do they do? They strip him of his dignity and they mock him with a robe or, uh, pretending he's a king. They parody his lordship by putting a crown of thorns on his brow. It takes a real ingenious inhumanity to come up with a crown of thorns. And they shout sarcastic comments. And they spit and they brutally hit. In many uh, instances, the beating that the Romans would have given Jesus would have killed someone before they even got any further. As these Romans indulge cruelty, they are robbing Jesus of his humanity. They are saying, you are less than us. And it reminds us of the third and final uh, sin that we can talk about. This one of cruelty. This one of inhumanity. Because the lost continually indulge in it. Envy, when we think someone else doesn't deserve something and we do. Bigotry and racism, where we take the other and think they're somehow less than us and we deserve what they've got. Or they are not entitled uh, to the same things that we are. When we stand on their necks to have our own advantage, it is a pitiful and cancerous attitude. This cruelty that demeans the other so that we can prosper. And believers still do it. Every time we fail to do unto others as we would have them do to us, we are uh, uh, prone to this accusation of cruelty. When we fail to see the image of God in someone else and help them and uh, rise to the occasion for them, we are saying by our actions we are more important than you. And so as I close, we take this opportunity as we see Jesus led 
to his death. As we hear the crowd shout out obscenely, crucify him. As Pilate complacently washes his hands and then indulges the soldiers. As the soldiers rise to the occasion and brutally and inhumanely attack Jesus. It is a chance for us to ask for the Holy Spirit to expose in our hearts these sins. We no longer want to be part of the baying crowd. We don't want to be among those soldiers attacking Jesus. We don't want to be Pilate pretending that we can wash our hands. It is this moment where we can thank Jesus for taking on this torture because we could never bear up under it. We could never pay the price that our rebellion demands. And we can cry to the Father, your will be done. Not my will, but your will. Let me close with uh, uh, these thoughts of uh, uh, Peter Crave again. Am I great or what? Compared with what? With others? Why compare yourself with others? What then is our ground for self-esteem? That God loved each of us into existence by design. God has no unwanted children. And he deemed us so important that even when we know him, he didn't know to us, but he yesed. To us. In fact, he gave us himself, his life and his life's blood. He died so that we could live. He ceased to be so that we could be. And he didn't do that for our for dear occupant. He did it for you. He would have done no less if you had been the only person in the world. In fact, you are the only person in the world and so am I. That's what love is, when you love someone. That someone is the only person in the world to you. Remember his parables of God's love, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, they get 100% of your attention and love. Not 10%, not 50%, or even 99%. How could God do any less than we do when we love? Jesus didn't die for humanity. Humanity is an idea, an abstraction, a concept. Fools and politicians talk about dying for concepts. Soldiers die for their friends. Humanity doesn't exist. You do. The nail prints in Jesus' hands spell out your name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Of all the words in our language, Jesus is the most precious. Jesus, we thank you for enduring all of this. We thank you for subjecting yourself to humiliation and execution. We thank you that your death means that our sin falls on you and that we can know the unrestricted love of God. Heavenly Father, I pray 
that we would use this time as we look forward to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. That we would let go of our own efforts at self-esteem. And that we would listen to what you have to say about us. Holy Spirit, expose the selfishness in our hearts so that we can become more Jesus-like. And Father, we thank you for the grace that you have lavished on us. Lord God, we look forward to next Sunday when we celebrate the empty tomb. Heavenly Father, I thank you that though we don't deserve it, we are the most blessed of people. In Jesus' name, amen.